So Grandpa Sawatsky is in heaven. And Grandpa Sawatsky is Lauren's grandfather on her mother's side. And it's been quite a number of years that he passed away. Uh, one of the things I loved about Grandpa Sawatsky is when he was with us, and every time we went to a Christmas gathering or a family gathering, Grandpa Sawatsky would always sit everyone down, and then he would tell stories. And he had lots of amazing stories. He was a Mennonite Mennonite out of Russia. You know, they spoke the low German, and they, they, they made all the food, the special German or Mennonite stuff. And so amazing people. And one of the stories Grandpa Skowatsky used to tell is of when he was in Russia as a seven-year-old boy. His name was Jacob, or they called him Yash. And um, the Russian revolution happened. And so the Russian army came through and they went through their village and they took all the food they could find in every home, the livestock they wanted, they could take for to feed the army. And so they left these villages and these people with nothing. And winter was coming, and they were left with nothing. So um, Grandpa, or Jacob, would tell the story of how, as a seven-year-old boy, the, the energy in the village just went down. Until the kid, there was no kids playing anymore. They would just kind of sit listlessly, because there was no energy. And the, and the kids, they would take little pebbles, and they would suck them in their mouths to keep the saliva going, so they felt like there was something happening. But they were so hungry. He would just describe this hunger. And so the food they would eat is they would have soup. Mom would put on water, and then they would go and they would see if they could find a root or maybe a turnip that was still in a garden somewhere, or a potato, put it in the water and flavor the water, and that was their soup. So they were starving. So the family starving, his brothers and sisters, and so finally dad says, I'm going to go to a few villages over to, to grandma and grandpa's village, and we'll see if they have any food. Maybe they can share, or they would be willing to spare some. So he's going to go, and Jacob goes with him. Grandpa gets in the, the wagon, and they ride um, the snowy you know, track all the way to Grandma and Grandpa's village. And they get there, and Jacob, sa- he says he was excited because he knew you never left from Grandma and Grandpa's without something. And so they went, and they got there, and sure enough, every village has been, there's no food anywhere. And so even at Grandma and Grandma's, they say, well, we've got nothing like we can offer you. Soup, the water soup. You know, they, no one has anything. So with empty-handed, for the first time ever, they get in the wagon, and they begin to ride back. And, and, and the father's just downcast, and, and they're, he's picturing the kids waiting for them at home, hoping they're going to bring some food. And so they're riding along, and um, suddenly the wagon hits something, a rock in the road, and the wagon wheel um, it's wobbly or breaks or kind of something's wrong. And so they stop and the father gets out and he goes down to see what they hit. And it turns out it wasn't a rock. It was a big, huge, round loaf of bread. Russian black bread. Like, this is bread. Like, we wouldn't eat this bread. It's so hearty. <laughs> and he takes this big frozen hunk of bread <laughs> puts it in the, in the wagon, and they ride home. And Grandpa says, that loaf of bread, one little handful a day, every kid would get a little piece of bread to go with the soup. He said, that loaf of bread lasted us through winter until spring when the MCC came in with relief, and they would provide food and, and brought relief, and the village suddenly came back to life. Incredible. Grandpa, he had this huge pot belly. He'd walk around and be like, I'm proud of my pot belly. This belly, I was, I, 
I was hungry and now I've been satisfied. He's narrow. He was never ashamed of that belly. He loved food. And any, any person in his house, they had to clear their plate. There was no food left on the plate at the Sawatsky's house. This is the story of hunger and being satisfied. And our story this morning is this story. It's about hunger and being satisfied. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a, it's a well-known miracle story that um, Jesus did. It's one of the big ones. It's, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So it's the big miracle that everyone talked about. Each John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this story, and they all have the details are all the same. And this is the story that no one can forget. There's lots of other great miracles. Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus calming the storm. Jesus walking on water. Jesus raising dead people. But this story is the story that they're all talking about. Let's read it together. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. On their return, the apostles, so just to pause for a second. So last week, Ben gave us the, the last story was Jesus sent out the disciples, the apostles, the 12, and they went out and then they came back. And so this is the, the, their return. Upon their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a, a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. (laughs) Right. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. And my big idea this morning is that Jesus satisfies the deepest longing of every heart. Jesus satisfies the deepest longing of every heart. Jesus is the attraction, Jesus is the bread, and Jesus is more, more than enough. Jesus is the attraction, Jesus is the bread, and Jesus is more. Jesus is the attraction. A few years ago, we had friends whose um, son was dying. He was battling cancer. And after his his year-long battle, he ended up getting put into Canuck Place, which is a hospice. And so I went to go play guitar and to sing over him, to pray for healing and to just encourage him with music. And so I went and I brought my guitar in. And it always feels a bit awkward when I'm going to a hospital or somewhere with a guitar and you know, but people are like, oh, that's okay, you know. And so I went in and like, okay, let's close the door. I don't want to dis- disturb other people. And sat down and I played, you know, played music for him and I prayed and um, his parents were there. And so at different points, his parents left to go get lunch. So at one point, his mother left and then another point, his dad left and came back and um, as I was playing. And so his mom went and came back, his dad went and came back. And when his dad came back, he said, his name was Kim Unra, and he, he said to me, 
all the nurses are standing outside the door. And I was like, oh, oh, like, am I playing too loud? And he said, no, they all like it. They're all listening at the door. And I said, oh, well, that's good. And he said, yeah, one of the nurses stopped me at the, um, at the desk. And she said, you know, I'm not religious, but um, that's really beautiful. And actually, your family, there's something about your family that is really attractive, even though I'm not religious at all. And I know, you know, you guys got your thing going on. And he said, well, I'm not religious either, but I, we just love Jesus. And actually, everyone in that room, they're not religious. They just love Jesus, and they're following Jesus. Here's the thing. Religious activity is not attractive. I don't think so. Religious activity is not attractive. Jesus is attractive. Jesus is attractive. There's a huge crowd of people here. A huge crowd. It says 5,000 men. 5,000 men. Now, commentators will say, you know, they're counting men. That's how it was done. You can like it or lump it, whatever. That's the number of men. And so they would say, you have to also add the number of women and children. So, you know, I saw numbers that said 20,000 possibly. So regardless, it's way more than 5,000. That's just the men. So there's a lot of people here following Jesus. How come there's so many people following Jesus? You know what? I think we have an idea of Jesus that looks like this. The movie Jesus. This is the Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus. Growing up, this is kind of what I thought of. This is the the picture of Jesus. He's very serious. He's distant. He's pretty intense. He's got a sour face right there. A little bit sour. It's like cheeks are a little puckered. Maybe he yells. He's a bit confusing. Blessed all the poor in spirit. You've got this like very intense thing. You know, maybe they're Italian or I don't like, I don't know what the Jesuses are, but there was all these Jesuses that seemed like this to me. And yet the Jesus I knew and experienced didn't ever seem like that. So movie Jesus and the Jesus I kind of felt like I knew were different. And then at one point there was this movie made of the book of Matthew this isn't the book of Matthew, Jesus, but I couldn't get a picture that would show. But this is, this is what he was like. He's smiling. He's laughing. Like, I watched this, and I was like, oh, this is like the Jesus I would want to be around. He's funny. He's like, there's just this excitement around him. And when I picture Jesus, movie Jesus, and real Jesus, they're usually different. And I think we have this idea that's different than the real Jesus who everyone wanted to be around. This is the deal. It, it was the religious elite, those people who were, you're in or you're out, God. God doesn't like you. He likes me. Those people, everyone wasn't clamoring to be with those people. They were clamoring to be around Jesus because the message Jesus proclaimed was revolutionary. It was different than what they'd been hearing. And people wanted to hear it. Religion was not attractive. Jesus was attractive. The context of our story is that Jesus has gone out and he's been proclaiming, he's been preaching, talking about the kingdom, and he's been healing the sick. He even just raised the dead. He raised a dead girl. And everyone is talking about this. And then what does Jesus do? He goes and he takes his 12 disciples or apostles and he sends them out all the way, all into these towns to go and preach and proclaim and to heal the sick. And when they do that, they're proclaiming the name of Jesus so that 
everyone is saying, who's this Jesus? Oh, we got to meet this Jesus. Where is he? He's over in that town. And they, no, he's not over here. Where'd he go? Oh, he withdrew. He's over. Okay, let's go. And the crowd just followed Jesus everywhere. They wanted to be around him. And my question for you is, do you know the real Jesus or the movie Jesus? Because there's a difference. The real Jesus is someone who is attractive, who you would want to be around when you meet him. His was a message of hope. His actions were the actions of a savior. His life was alive and living. Jesus um, is trying to get alone in our story. He he takes his disciples who just returned and he's trying to take them off, maybe to debrief them and talk through stuff with them, but this crowd won't leave him alone. And if I were those disciples or I were Jesus, I picture I would just be annoyed. I'd be like, leave me alone. I just want some space. I need space from you, people. But Jesus doesn't do that. Mark says in, in 634, it, it sa- he, he says it this way. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. What a great description of us. Sheep without a shepherd. Wandering, confused, empty, hungry. This is the picture. You know, I think our human default is that we're constantly looking for something else. When I was a very, very little boy, before I went to school, I saw my older sister go to school, and I said, I want to go to school. Once I go to school, then my life will really begin. And then I went to school, and I was in, I was in prim- the primary side, and there was an intermediate side, and then I realized, oh, it's the intermediate side. That's where life really begins. And then I became an intermediate student. I said, yeah, oh, no, it's grade seven. They're the kings of the school. Yes, when I get to grade seven, then my life will really begin. And I got to grade seven, and I realized, oh, there's a grade eight. And in grade eight, that's where your life really begins. And I became a grade eight. And now, of course, everyone knows grade eight is not the top of the pile. And so then I, I need to get to, actually, I had, was in a junior high, so I want to get to high school. And when I get to high school, I realized I need my license to, to live. This is what I'm missing, my driver's license. And so I got my driver's license. And then I realized, oh, no, I need to graduate. That's what I need. And so then I graduated. And when I graduated, that's when you go into some direction. And I, so I could have gone tra- trades or wherever, and I ended up going to university and so I go to university and realize I'm a freshman senior senior that's where it's at that's when my life's gonna start and then I became a senior and I realized oh I gotta get a job my career that's that's when it's all gonna begin for me and so then I graduated and I started a job and then I realized man this isn't fun alone I need a wife that's when my life's gonna start and so I got my wife. Yes, got her. Okay, now my life's ready to go. And I realized, no, no, there's more. I, I, I need kids, kids. That's when, it's, that's when the fun starts. You know, all the kids, that's exciting and fun. <laughs> yeah. So I had one. And, you know, one isn't enough, so we got to have two, then three, then four. And it just never stopped. I don't even know how you stop it, but it just keeps going. And it's five kids, you know, and I know my life's going to start at some point. And my career, got to get my career on track. And then, oh, I know when I retire, that's when my life's going to really start. Does this sound familiar at all? When I was little, I wanted to be big. When I was big, I wanted to be little again. Never satisfied. You guys were hungry. We're hungry. Erwin McManus calls it a craving. We have these craving. We don't know what it's going to satisfy it. We're hungry for meaning or for purpose. 
hungry for hope. We're hungry for happiness. But we have no idea where to find this. We have no idea. And so usually we go to the world because the world is promising that they have an answer to this. They advertise that they have an answer to this for me. And so we go to the world. We go to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola says their motto is open happiness. (laughs) Open happiness? This is what they said. You know, the CEO of Coke recently said, we're not going with this anymore because we can't open. How do you open happiness? We can't promise. We're not, de- we're not delivering on that. They changed their motto. Volkswagen says, get in, get happy. Oh, change the bacon. I switched it up. Maple Leaf says, change. <laughs> this, is their, this is their advertising. Change your life with bacon. Change your life. That's what we needed. All this time, I was just waiting for bacon. I just need to eat more bacon. Volkswagen is get in, get happy. That's what's going to happen. You just get in a Volkswagen. You just feel the happiness. It just flows. Get in, get happy. Kudos says, if life were a happiness contest or a happy contest, we'd totally win that contest. And their motto is choose happy. Just get the phone. That's going to make you happy. That's it. That's what we're looking for. Whether it's material goods, alcohol, different government, more sex, more bacon, personal achievement, or your bottle of Coca-Cola, we are still left hungry and searching. And if you try those things, you'll find it's true. We're hungry and searching. Isaiah 55 verse 2 says that God says this through Isaiah. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus is attractive because he's delivering on this promise. Jesus is attractive because he's delivering on the promise that we're going to be filled. We're not going to be hungry anymore. And Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the attraction and Jesus is the bread. Now, I've told you guys lots of times that in the evening, sometimes I end up, whatever I was doing, I end up in the kitchen, walking around, opening cupboards, looking for snacks. I've told you, I've confessed this to you before. You know, I'd, I just I find myself in there and I might have even just had a snack. But then I'm back in the kitchen looking for more snacks. And I will go around the kitchen and I won't find anything. And then I might come back again and I'm just looking for something that's going to satisfy me. Now, this problem that I have isn't a hunger problem. It's not a food problem because I just ate a snack or I just had dinner. The problem is something deeper. It's that I'm hungry for something that food is not going to meet. It's never going to touch it. Snacking is not going to satisfy it. Why does Jesus feed these people? I have this question. I read the story. I think, Why does Jesus feed these people? Why does he do it? Is he just in the mood for a miracle? Just kinda, yeah, today we'll do a miracle. Let's yeah, collect all these people. It's late. The day is wearing on. The disciples have a good point when they say, Jesus, we're responsible. You're drawing these people here. We should send them off. It's going to be stuck here, and we don't have food. We don't have shelter. Like, you, we need to send them away. And there's too many people. If 
5,000 men or like 20,000 people maybe? What? Like this is a huge number of people. In fact, in Mark and John, the disciples estimate how much it would cost to feed these people. You know what they say? 200 denarii. Not $200. 200 denarii. Which is, one denarii is a day's wage. So 200 denarii. So if we, like we could set it at whatever, but if we set a day's wage at $150, it would be $30,000 we'd be talking about. They say, Jesus, it's going to cost like $30,000 to feed all these people. You want us to feed all these people? This is crazy. They don't have enough, even when they collect the food that's there. They have five loaves and two fishes. That's what they've conscripted. Hey, you have some food? Give me that. Hey, you have, do you have food? No, you don't. Okay. Okay. Do you, no, you don't have food? Are you sure? Okay. All they got from doing that was five loaves and two fish. That's all. They're, Jesus, this isn't even enough to feed me. Like, I'm barely going to be full here. This is not about food. This is not about food. This is not Jesus simply meeting a physical need. In the book of Exodus, there's a story about bread, bread from heaven. And it's the story of the Israelites. They've come out of the Red Sea. Don't put that up yet. Everyone's going to read it. And they come out of the Red Sea. Um, So there's the plagues. They were slaves. Moses leads the people out. Maybe you've heard this story. He leads the people through the Red Sea. The water comes back. And they're on their way to the promised land. They're going through the desert. And they start complaining. They say, Moses, what? Did God bring us out here to die? We're so hungry. There's no food out here. What are you going to do? Do something. And Moses goes to God and he prays. And God makes something appear on the ground in the morning. And the people go out and they're like, what is this? What is it? It's white and we're supposed to eat it? And Moses says, yeah, you collect it. Look at this. It's really good. And they say, what is it? And they call it manna, which means, what is it? (laughs) What is it? I don't know. Let's just, what is it? I don't know. Let's just call it, what is it? Okay. And so they've got this stuff and they collect it and they eat it. And then this quail comes and God provides meat for them. This is what it says in Exodus 16. Then the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. As much as he could eat. And they were satisfied. Why does God do it this way? I don't understand. Why does he just give us bread? God, why this weird white stuff on the ground? And we got to go back out and get it tomorrow? Can't we just collect a whole bunch of it? No, we got to go get it every day? Every day? Why does God do it this way? Again, it's a picture of real food meeting a real physical need, but it's a spiritual picture that God talks about over and over and over throughout the Bible. Jesus is the bread of life. Just a spoiler alert. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread of life. John records Jesus explaining this. Okay? So when John gives the account of the 5,000, feeding of the 5,000, a little bit after that, the people are talking to Jesus, and Jesus explains, and this is what he says. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Jesus says it's not about the food. It's not about the food. It's a symbolic picture of Jesus. Jesus is the bread from heaven. Jesus is the one who satisfies the longing of every heart. Jesus meets the craving. Jesus fills the hole. Jesus answers the emptiness. It's Jesus. So the bad news is that we can't feed ourselves. We can't do it. We can't manufacture all that food. We can't rescue ourselves. We can't qualify ourselves. We can't manufacture the satisfaction we're looking for. We're not going to find it in Coca-Cola. And you can't erase your guilt either. Ephesians 2, 1 to 6 says, You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. Such a good description of sin. What we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. But instead, goes on to say, immense in mercy, he saved us. He reached out. And that's the good news is that Jesus gave himself to be our satisfaction. He says, I'm the one who's going to satisfy you. And his promise is to all who believe in him, all who trust in him, they will never be hungry and thirsty that way again. He satisfies. This is what he says in John chapter six. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, our cross isn't up today, but Jesus says, I point to the cross. I'm going to give my life for your satisfaction. I'm going to give myself to save you and to rescue you. Maybe you've heard this a lot of times. Maybe it's your first time hearing this. And some of you I know have heard this like a thousand times. You're like, your eyes are glazed over. And you're like, yeah, I know the good news, the bad news. Yeah, I can't do it. Yeah, Jesus is the thing, right? Okay. You know this, but you don't know it. You've got to know it in your heart. Every single day. Just like manna can't be collected in a huge heap and you put it in your barn and you say, I got lots of manna from last year. Yeah, I know God. I I grew a lot in God last year. It was so good. And I'm just living off that. You go open that door, it's moldy. It doesn't last. This is bread from heaven that you have to go to every day to be satisfied in him. And you know what I guarantee you? If you know, oh, I know all about the gospel, good news stuff, and I put it in that barn, you know what? This is all going to get old, and you're going to feel that satisfaction isn't met anymore, and you're hungry again for something, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the attraction. Jesus is the bread, and Jesus is more. Jesus feeds all these hungry people and he multiplies the food and we we see Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bread that satisfies. And I still have a question at the end. And my question is, again, I have lots of questions. My question is, why all the leftovers? Jesus, why, why do you need to make more than just what people need? This is the story, and it's told in all four Gospels. This, these are the same details in every one. It's the end of the day. Jesus asks the disciples to feed the people. 
There's 5,000 men in every description. There's five loaves and two fish that they're collected. And then at the end, everyone describes there being 12 basketfuls of extras left over. And my question is, why the 12 baskets? Why the extra? And I came to these three answers. The first answer is so that it would be a miracle that we can't argue with. There's these people and they go around and they say, yeah, the miracle, there's no miracles. You know, the miracles in the Bible, we can explain them away. And so they say, you know, this miracle, it's just everyone got out their lunch at the same time. That's what happened. That must be what happened. Jesus said, oh, we're going to feed everyone. And everyone pulls out their lunch and eats and everyone's satisfied. It's great. And that's the same problem if we took that view as saying that the people of Israel crossed through the Red Sea at low tide. That's also a way of explaining away the miracle. Yeah, they just, it was just, you know, inch deep in water, and they just went through it. Looked like the sea parted. And the question then comes is, well, then how did all the Egyptians drown in this much water? That would be impossible, right? And again, with our picture is, if everyone opens their lunch and eats it at the same time, there is not 12 basketfuls of food left over. There is enough food to feed everyone, and that's it. Twelve basketfuls of food means there's no natural explanation for the food multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Secondly, it connects Jesus to the Old Testament prophets. You know how these people are going around, they're saying, is Jesus Elijah reborn? Is he like Elijah come back from the dead or Moses or who, who is Jesus anyway? Because in the Old Testament, you've got Elijah, this very well-known prophet who did these miracles just like this. He went to this widow and the widow says, I only have this little bit of flour and this little bit of oil and we're going to die and I've got enough for one last meal and that's it. I can't even feed you. And Elijah says, if you will make it for me, there'll be enough for you too. And so she says, okay, fine. She makes the meal, gives him some, makes herself some, makes her son some. The next day, she makes them all some. The next day, she makes them all some. And this food just keeps going and going and going. It's one of the miracles of Elijah. Now, Elisha, who came after Elijah, he also had one of those stories where the woman says, I don't have any oil. You know, my oil is done. I'm poor. And it's all at the end of everything. And he says, okay, borrow some jars and then start pouring that little bit of oil into the jars. And she does, and she does, and she does. And the oil fills up all these jars, the little bit of oil in her jar, until all the jars are full and then it's empty. And then she sells all the jars of oil. It's multiplication. Now, this, this miracle Jesus does is above and beyond what these guys have done. It's not just a widow and her son. It's 5,000 people experience multiplication. It's a miracle greater than Moses and Elijah. And thirdly, I think he does it to make a statement that Jesus is about abundance. Jesus is about abundance. He's about overflow. The kingdom we live in that we're a part of isn't a stingy kingdom where we'll just give you a little bit. We'll just give you a little bit. We'll just give you a little bit. This is a kingdom where it's like a fire hose. And you're like, whoa, there's too much blessing. I can't even handle it all. It's like pouring out. Yes. And there's more to share. So, oh, I just have my little bit. I better just eat it myself. No, there's so much abundance. We just share it. Hey, does anyone else want bread and fish? We got 12 baskets. Anyone else? Jesus says he is the bread that's more than enough. John chapter 6, verse 52 to 53, it says, The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. (laughs) People don't quote this verse very much. You know what I picture if I'm saying, I'm like, this is weird. I'm out of here. This is so weird. What are you talking about, Jesus? It was really cool, the miracles you were doing. This is not as cool. When you talk about eating your flesh and drinking your blood, I'm weirded out. We know because we're way after the fact. We know exactly what he meant when he said that. He meant he's offering his body as the bread to be broken and his blood to be shed as the cup so that we could be set free. It's the picture of communion. And it's the very same image and the very same picture as when on the night he's going to be betrayed on the Last Supper, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives thanks and then he offers it to them. It's that same thing. He says, it's my body that's going to be multiplied for the life so that many can come into the kingdom and be saved. Lavishly poured out. Jesus is the feast. There's um, one last story I have, and it's the story of, um, it's called Babette's Feast. It was a short story, and it was made into a movie. And it's the story of these two kind of spinster um, women, and they kind of run this little, like, uh, it's like a little, no, it's not Amish, but they're very, uh, they're very careful about lots of things, and they're very withdrawn, and they have their own life in this coastal town in, um, off the coast of Denmark. And um, so they're out there, and they've got this little community they kind of teach and they live in, and they've given up a lot of things for the sake of what they believe is the kingdom because they think a lot of stuff is sinful. Like the one sister is very beautiful, and she had lots of suitors, and she said, no, beauty is of the devil, and so I'm going to be alone. And the other sister had this beautiful voice she could sing, and she said, no, you know, that fame and acclaim I would get from that voice would be evil and sinful, so I'm going to I'm going to go off. I'm never, I won't sing. And so they go off and they lead this community, very austere, very serious. You know, they follow, but they're just very, it's very tight. And suddenly one morning, this one day, this lady shows up on their door and she falls on the floor and they get the letter. And it's a letter from someone in Paris that they knew who sent this lady to them and said, she's destitute. She's got nothing. Will you take her in and care for her in your community? And so they say, oh, okay, well, I guess so. And so they take her and they teach her how to do, you know, housework and chores. And they have this, you know, this gruel they make that they give out to people. And so they teach her how to do this. And she seems a little out of sorts, but they show her the ropes and she does pretty good. And in fact, over the 12 years that she's with them, she, they find she brings a lot of life to their community and they come to really love her as a person. Babette is her name. And so after 12 years, suddenly she gets a letter in the mail and she's never gotten a letter at all. And the letter comes and they say, well, what's this letter? And she, they open it and she has won a lottery in Paris that someone kept putting her name in. 10,000 francs. She's suddenly wealthy and she can go back to Paris. And so the sisters are sad and they say, oh, you're going back. And Babette says, before I go, I would like to throw you a feast. I'd like to make you a meal that's a French meal. And these people are, oh, French meal, what does that mean? I'm a little nervous. And so finally they agree because it's Babette and she's never asked them for anything all this time. And so they go off and then the 
craziness starts. All this stuff starts arriving at the port. There's food. There's like live turtles. And they're like, oh, this is like a witch. Like, what is happening here? There's like live turtles. What would you even do with that? And there's wine and there's champagne. Champagne? Oh, my goodness. Right? Like, it's really not good. And so they're really concerned. And they pull the community together. And they say, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to be able to eat this food and do this thing for her? I don't know. And so finally they agree. We'll, we'll do it even though there's maybe some sin involved. But the, the best way we could do it is just to eat without saying anything. We'll just eat quietly and, and just do it. And so they agree they're going to do this. And so they come to the meal. Now, one of the ladies had a, a nephew, an uninvited guest who came. And so they brought him in and he's there. And he's a general, like a well-known general. And so he, he's not part of this community at all. And he sits down and he looks, starts drinking the wine. He's like, oh, this wine is, this tastes like the Fromagnon. I don't even know what a great wine would be, but like, oh, this is so amazing. Like, this can't be. And he drinks some champagne. He's like, oh, this tastes like, this champagne is like nothing else I've drank. And, and the people are all sitting there very quiet, like, you know, and this too, this tastes like turtle soup. Is this turtle soup? How could this be turtle soup? Way out here in the middle of nowhere. How could this be? It tastes like, oh, and this, this friend, he's just effusive with his praise. And everyone else just sits there. We don't say anything. Until finally his just enjoyment of this meal breaks through. And these people start <laughs> laughing a little bit and beginning to enjoy themselves. There's some reconciliation that happens over this table. Suddenly life begins to happen. And as the meal comes to a close, the sisters get up and they go into the kitchen where Babette is. There's all the pots and pans and all the food's been made and she's sitting there. And they come and they say, well, that was a nice meal, Babette. It was a nice meal. And Babette says, I used to be the chef at the Café Anglaise. And they don't even know what that means, so they say, well, we will remember this evening when you go on to Paris. And she says, I'm not going to Paris. They say, well, why not? She says, I spent all the money, all the 10000 on this meal for you. And they say, what? They're shocked. She says, that's what it costs for a meal for 12 people at the Café Anglaise. It's 10,000 francs. This is grace. This is grace. It costs the giver everything. And these people sat and enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it in their worry. Jesus is Babette. This is the picture. He's given his winnings, his righteousness, so that we could experience a feast. But he's not just Babette, you guys. He is the feast. He says, I am the feast. You feast on me. I'm the satisfaction. I am the living bread that you're going to taste and eat of. That's going to bring you life forever. This is the picture. Jesus satisfies the deepest longing of every heart. Jesus is the attraction. Jesus is the bread. And Jesus is more. He's more than enough. He's more. Let's pray. God, I thank you for coming, uh, for not 
not remaining far away from us, even though um, we were separated. That you came in the person of Jesus and you, um, you, you proclaimed a kingdom that we could hardly fathom. You proclaimed a love, a God that loved us uh, that we could hardly fathom. You proclaimed a grace and an acceptance over us that we could hardly fathom. And then you gave your life so that we could have it and experience it. And Jesus, um, this morning, even as we're about to go into a time of communion, Lord, we recognize that um, we're not just eating little pieces of bread and drinking juice or wine or dipping them because it's just a routine. We do this to remind ourselves of this picture, that you have given everything that we could be satisfied. You've given everything so that we could experience happiness in relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that for every heart this morning that, um, that you would be moving, you'd be reaching in, you'd be transforming us, and, and that our desire would be to experience you more and more daily, that you would be our satisfaction, not the world, not what the world advertises, but you. You would be enough for us. And that that love and that, what, what you do in our lives would overflow in abundance to the world around us. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Amen.